This is the Rad Mars Podcast, Episode 73. I'm Andy Mindler. And I'm Brendan Trombley. I'm Trevor Williams. And I'm Andrew Ford. Hello. Hello, Hello everyone. Hi. Good evening. Welcome back. to this Monday night recording session. <laughs> I had to use my one sick day a year for this pod- on this podcast last week. That's right. You son of a bitch. You only get one sick day at this company. <laughs> we don't get benefits. We don't get paid time off. We don't get health care. What a, what, a, what a racket this is. I know, man. <laughs> and the hourly wages we make aren't even minimum wage. <laughs> I was going to say a racket usually implies some sort of significant income. Yeah, or like someone whatsoever is benefiting from the from the setup. <laughs> Everyone is suffering from this. Every week we suffer, and we apologize for making you suffer, dear listener. Yeah, yeah. we just inflict injury. I was a little sad to miss last week because I had a spooky thing to talk about. I did some I was doing some research on, so I thought maybe I could share it before we go to our topic today. Oh, you're gonna impart some spookiness into this spooky yeah. season? Well, this ep- this episode will will happen before Halloween, right? Must. Yep. Okay. So yep. that's part. That's this my, is my the con- month of spookiness. Yeah, and my contribution yeah. to Spooky Month. Uh, I wanted to talk about the Wendigo. Oh, I, I don't know. If- dumb, dumb, dumb. <laughs> yeah, we all react. Stare blankly and be scared. Uh, I theoretically know what the Wendigo is, but I'm sure uh, you're going to tell me more than I. Is it Wendigo or Wendigo? I don't. I don't know. It's lost to the the... myths and legends. (laughs) What's the plural of Wendigo? Quick, Wendigo. Wendigai. Wendigo. Wendigoose. Wendigoctai. Um. So yeah, it's not necessarily like a scary story. Like I think that's what you guys did, right? Like you took actually stories with structure. I kind of. I don't really have that. But I do have this is sort well, of more you like fucked a, up already. Oh, yeah, well, it's still spooky. Uh, it's still like an interesting mythological creature. <laughs> grumble, grumble. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there is like a bit of a myth attached to it that I can sort of explain. At least one of the myths that I've heard. Um, so the Wendigo is uh, a creature of uh, Native American origin, like specifically, um, like the North parts of north america or like at least like i think like more like around the great lakes so places that have like cold winters is kind of an important part about the wendigo and uh there's like different appearances of it but like the sort of classic appearance that or maybe not classic but the one that's sort of seeping into the like modern public consciousness is like a really gross dirty man-shaped thing but with like a deer head is this striking bells for you guys have you heard of this before yeah so it's this is not what i no oh. of the wendigo yeah and so like the first time i ever encountered it was actually in like a spooky reddit thread and it was only very loosely based on the legend of the wendigo which uh but the features of it that were sort of common were the yeah the, this like sort of appearance of it um 
and the fact that it smelled like awful death and felt even though it looked kind of natural like a deer it gave off like it exuded like tons and tons of like sort of unnatural energy and it like kind of made the forest silent around it and and the, and the reddit poster was saying how like you know they encountered this wendigo like while hunting or whatever and uh and it kind of like stared it down it stared him down and like the entire like woods went silent and i forget if it started like marching towards him or chasing him or whatever but you know, it was one of those things that it was more about how like well written and just and like described it it was and the sort of way it affected the nature and stuff around it. But so I that really was like the, f- the story ends with him shooting it, cutting off its head, mounting it <laughs> over a thing, and being completely indistinguishable from the regular deer. That would be a nice ending. It was a, the happy ending version. It's the director. <laughs> and there's the director's cut where except then his one. family was cursed for the rest of time. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Um, but that, like I said, is kind of very loosely, loosely based on what the actual, like how the legend really comes from. Um, and so the thing that, uh, the thing that it actually comes from is basically the Wendigo is sort of like a Native American, um, I guess, incarnation of actual like human greed and, uh, uh, and like selfishness. And that manifests itself specifically uh, usually in like cannibalism, so like oh, in the cool. myth, oh yeah. So in the myth, it's sort of like a Wendigo is a person who succumbed to their greed, especially in a time of like you know hardship. So like you know during like the winter, like a really harsh winter, uh, uh, and and succumbs to their greed and like eats other people, attacks and eats other people. Um, yep, and then they that's like, trans- the part I've heard. Yeah, and they they kind of like I, I don't know if it's necessarily like a transformation or just a manifestation. Right. It's it's actually one thing I like about the Wendigo is how like ambiguous it is. Sometimes it has this form of like a deer head man. Sometimes it's just a normal human who just went nuts and killed and murdered and ate some people. Um I think it's also really spooky because it probably has basis in like reality, right? Like in in situations where things get really cold and dire, people probably ha you know, did and have eaten each other in those sorts of situations um so that's kind of cool and gross and terrible mm-hmm. and it's also plausible that the experience has kind of broken them so then the next year comes around they meet other people and then they're just completely out of their mind dirty and covered yeah in right from having eaten people so it could like turn i mean it's the sort of thing where you can right i mean it's the sort of thing you could absolutely see something similar having happened and becoming the foundation of that mythology yeah yeah totally and that's cool. It's it's cool to think that like uh, I mean I think a lot of myths and legends are probably based in some kind of fact in some at some point or another, right? And then blossomed and and mutated into what they became. Um and so yeah, one of the myths, one of the sort of actual stories of the Wendigo is uh uh I think the name was Anwe, and he's sort of like a Native American sort of heroic figure, you know, kind of like a Hercules or maybe like a Maui, you know, like Super, supernaturally strong, supernaturally awesome, heroic, goes around, does like crazy heroic deeds. Sings awesomely. Just, yeah, just awesome all around dude. Uh, And um, the story of the Wendigo that he, that I I saw on like a extra credits video was um, how uh, Anwe had like suspected, you know, this family of also, of being a family of Wendigo. And, you know, outwardly they looked like a normal family. They just kind of went about their daily business. They had no like abnormal appearance. And so after sort of staking them out for a while, he like sets up this like situation where he's like out on like a frozen lake and had cut cut a hole in the ice. And he like kind of produced a scenario in which like the Wendigo father could like feasibly kill him by pushing him into the ice. 
and gives him that like chance and then the the father goes for it and so you know of course he turns around and fucking kills the father instead and he had set it up so all the brothers were sort of like dispersed but could tell what was happening so the brothers kind of came and tried to kill him and attack him like one by one and he just sort of killed them all but it was okay because because they're all cannibals apparently and then uh it was the the wife and the sisters who once they figured out uh what had happened they became beastly and took on this like sort of wendigo form but it's okay because he just murdered them all that's that's my version of that spooky myth story <laughs> it's like psych kick to the nice. face you did <laughs> yeah it it wasn't a very yeah, the, the, it was a it was a myth with very low stakes the only stakes was like whether or not these people were actually wendigo and once they were they were like they were already dead because anway was such a bad uh badass <laughs> bam motherfucker <laughs> basically yeah bam Thanks for showing yourself. Now you're all dead. <laughs> oh, I have, I have one other Wendigo thing, which was I actually saw a movie semi-recently that features the Wendigo, and it was filmed in my hometown area, which is a you know a place in upstate New York that has harsh winters, and it was filmed by like a crew and by people who like are from this area, um, and it was uh, pretty cool actually. Uh, it did feature a, a creepy Wendigo type figure, but only it, it was very ambiguous of whether it was like a figment of the guy's imagination. Cause part of the, part of the story involves him taking, I think mushrooms while out in the Adirondack wilderness with his best friend sure. <laughs> in the winter. And so it's like, is this a hallucination? Did he actually go crazy? It seems like did a real bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Super bad idea. Don't take hallucinogenic drugs in the ice cold freaking North country winters. Um, but it was mm. a pretty sweet movie. And had a really, really cool Wendigo like figure that like would always skulk way back in the woods, so you could just barely see its silhouette with like glowing eyes and like the antlers. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of ambiguous what's whether the, or not. What's this... the movie called? That's a great question. The Retreat. Shit. Hold on. <laughs> ah, Man, uh, I, I I'm on the weird side of TikTok, so I get strange shit. But like, there's a whole like group of people that like believe like there's this conspiracy that like the mountain ranges like the mountainous areas in america um especially like along the east coast like they contain like feral people and like cannibals and stuff and they're like all the like park rangers supposedly know about this and they just like can't really do much about it yeah of course <laughs> i guess people go just dis- like disappearing like every year and they just are like yep the cannibals got them <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what you're gonna do there's also <laughs> there's a huge group of them that think that like uh there's like when to go mixed in too and I'm like, man, you guys are just like a boiling pot of <laughs> conspiratorial <laughs> insanity. Excellent. I love it. It's great. I believe so the... I believe in the Wendigo and the cannibal feral people. You've been in the woods a bunch, right? In the mountains? Yeah, I've only ate like two people. It's not that bad. Oh, okay. So how many do you have to eat before you become a Wendigo? Three, well, four. You have to be a feral person first, I think. <laughs> oh, okay. See, Brandon's yeah. not feral. He's just a cannibal. I'm He's fine. just a dirtbag. <laughs> he hasn't, yeah. he hasn't like, so, renounced well, his humanity yet. Not quite. That's right. So of all the ways that I was introduced to the Wendigo, um, I was introduced by watching a Let's Play of a video game, and I actually had to look up the name of the game, uh, Until Dawn. Oh, oh spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, uh, I guess, a PlayStation 3 game where, you know, basically the characters are being eaten by Wendigos and, you know, you have to try to have as many of them survive as possible. Until Dawn is PS3? Pretty sure it's Uh, PS4. 
Yeah, it's, I, I see PS4. PS3. Uh, oh, wait, initially designed. Maybe I'm reading it wrong, and maybe it went to PS4 instead. I'm pretty sure it's PS4. Okay. Because it yeah. looked really good, and it had, like, a bunch yeah. of, like, legitimate actors, right? Like, it had yeah. the guy from uh, Mr. Robot? Mr. Robot, yeah. yeah. Rami Malek. And yeah. Hayden Panettera, who looks familiar, but I and don't it, know. Oh, she's from Heroes. Oh, okay. That'll she's the cheerleader. Cheerleader? Okay. So, yeah. Um, and the... Uh, the let's play that I watched, uh, the guy managed to save basically everyone until the very end where he's supremely fucked up and almost everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, that yeah. game was about Wendigo? Uh, yeah. You don't, yeah. The end of the that's day. why I said spoiler alert. You don't know it from the beginning, but it eventually turns out it's Wendigo. So, yeah. so it, do they look like, like, are they're they like, like, they're like monstrous, like drawn out, screwed up people that don't really look human anymore. Oh, but they don't have like yeah. antlers and shit. Yeah. They don't have a deer face. It's more of a sort of like, you know, uh, Yeti or sort of like kind of ice zombie ish or you, something a little bit. When you described or your Wendigo with like deer head and shit, like the one that the way that I always, always like told or uh, had seen Wendigo described it was essentially just like snow Yetis. That was it. Oh, wow. Huh. Snow, snow Yetis, you say, because normally Yetis don't exist in the snow. Right. It's not like those desert yetis, you know. <laughs> no, the the yeti I uh, yeti is mostly down in the south, like the like um what? Like Louisiana and stuff. Uh what yetis are you talking about? <laughs> Isn't that just a big down foot? South. Oh, oh wait, no. <laughs> I, fuck. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking of Okay, no, a yeti is a snow Sasquatch. Bigfoot. Basically. Okay, yeah. What the, sure. what the fuck am I thinking about? Jesus, my I, brain got all jumbled up with a bunch of cryptid horse shit. Still, you're like thinking of like a... The brain. Yeah, you're still thinking of like a, a hairy, apey kind of thing rather than like... Yeah, so, a so you don't interrupt a snow person. Bigfoot. Yeah. Let him and keep then, on talking. So want to hear more to... about the, you know, sand yetis. Tell me about sand. the chupacabra. <laughs> yeah, the chupacabra, man. The goat sucker. He'll blow you. <laughs> <laughs> but only if you're a goat. And in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. There we go. We encrypted talk. We got it. Cool. Good. Wow. <laughs> now we can talk about, about like the lizard future. man in like North Carolina or something. The Jersey devil. Good Wolf old man. Jersey devil. Uh, do you want to talk about like our real topic? I guess we thought we could do that now. Wait, what is our real topic? I forgot. <laughs> I got two. Uh, much thinking about the spooky, spooky monster. All right, I can I can remind you of the topic because I, I was I have the insp the inciting event, which was um I was looking up some videos recently of when the hell Silk Song is coming out, and Silk Song, if you don't know, is the now very much anticipated sequel to Hollow Knight, and which like started as an expansion, right? It was going to be an expansion, and then it got bigger and bigger, like like a like a DLC or something, right? And then it got bigger yep. and bigger and bigger, and they just spun it out into its own game, which is actually related to the topic, because so um, they like dropped a really amazing, you know, like set of information and like a trailer. I want to say two years ago, maybe a year ago. I don't know if it's twenty. Was it really that long ago? It was quite a long time ago now, and uh, and basically they've released almost no information since. Uh, but with some like vague clues left behind that uh, this one video was kind of analyzing that I watched, they're kind of sh they're kind of theorizing that the development team is basically doing a kind of like 
they just continue adding to the game and making it even bigger and even better with more enemies and more places and more you know items to do items to get and 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 so on and so on which is kind of related to how they did hollow knight i don't know if you know this but hollow knight was sort of designed you know almost like in a very agile way where like they they had like a small and complete game and then they could just keep sort of adding extra stuff and adding new layers onto it without and but at any time they could have sort of stopped and said okay the game's complete and and they did was that for a while hollow knight am i mistaken in thinking that was like a game jam game that like yeah. they then read it into a full game sort of yeah it was actually a ludum dare game that's um, what i thought okay yeah, i was like i didn't want to say ludum dare but i was like i thought it was it, it was, was a ludum dare that we also different. participated in yep did we beat them I think we kicked their ass. Yeah, I think the their original game was not especially very good. No, <laughs> and it, it not, that it makes me feel good. It did not resemble the final game at all. It was a top-down game. I think all it took from that, all the the only stuff that the, Just the aesthetic final game, yeah, it took like the there's these like three big bosses and the same designs kind of carried through to the and um, the main character would kind of look the same. Yep. Um, I'm impressed but, if they can design three big bosses for a Ludendari. It's true. <laughs> If that's all they designed, I guess that would work. But if you get enemies and stuff on top of that too, and then you make like you know light world and dark world versions of them for some reason, these are the these are the things that we've done to ourselves. Um, <laughs> We're idiots. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, so so going back to Silk Song, uh, right? The theory, one of the theories, is like you know they're kind of approaching Silk Song in a similar way. But here's the difference. When they were making Hollow Knight, they had a, a limited budget, right? It was like kickstarted and or like. Uh, self-funded and a couple other they had a couple of ways to to, to to like afford making the game but that had like a very set runway now now this time around they have essentially mm, kind of unlimited money from all the hollow knight you know revenue they made um in so comparison th they have in comparison yeah uh, but of course to make a game of a similar scope and size right they're still making a 2d you know metroidvania type game you can't there's not necessarily a uh, sort of exponential way to make that more expensive other than just making it bigger and kind of cooler and so uh part of the question is is like maybe they have like too much like freedom like too much creative freedom and they're not and they're sort of like overly adding to the game and not kind of choosing a point where it's like hey like this is we can call this done yeah where's the stopping and, like, point release it so like that's kind of the thing i was starting to think about is like uh what's the stopping point of something you know when do you decide mm -hmm. the thing you're working on is complete good enough because especially a game is like so unlimited almost in the ways that you can expand it or polish it unfortunately there's no such thing as getting rid of all the bugs right there's like always new bugs to to fix. especially a game about bugs you beat me to that but... terrible joke and i'm glad you did <laughs> though i'm sad that i admitted i uh i mean it's not surprising that like this is like a problem that they're like that's potentially what they're facing because like you know, starting as a DLC and then them kind of just keep adding shit until they're like, oh no, it's its own game now. Like <laughs> the red flag is already there that, uh oh, <laughs> yep. this could be a problem for them. Uh, also, I mean, especially with the, how many DLC did they drop for Hollow Knight? Uh, three, two. And there was the God huge, one, right? They were pretty big. There's the God one, which is basically allows you to fight all the bosses at varying levels of difficulty and it had its own like space. And then there was the like carnival of whatever second yeah. one. Was that the only two, or was there another one? There was no. There was more than that. There was one that was kind of like 
I think it really just added stuff into the main game. Like, I think the blue, like, health pickup thing was not in the original game. They really? also added a boss. I think the B area didn't have a boss. Okay. Um, and I think they added that in a DLC. So, I mean, like, that to me, like, it shows that, like, their base game, they were they built it in a way where they're just like, we can just keep adding shit to it. And so, like, once they, like, built that game, they're like, let's just keep doing that. And then they're like, oh, we can make an entire game where we do that. And then they just keep doing it forever <laughs> until they die. But, like, God, wouldn't it be great if I... they just released it and then kept <laughs> expanding on it? Oh. Well, <laughs> one of the things I wanted to say is that, like, the... Uh... The question of when to release something is a problem that I feel like applies to just any sort of creative endeavor. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, one of my favorite quotes, which is not attributable to any one person because it's attributable to like 50 people, is, you know, books are never finished. They are merely abandoned. Yep. I know that um, one is a work of art is never finished, only abandoned. Yes. Um, and in, I was trying to look it up uh, so I could actually say who said it, but it's attributed to like 50 different people in slight variations. So I think it actually, you know, represents Albert a universal Einstein. creative. Yes. <laughs> Jesus and, uh, Christ. And Wayne Gretzky <laughs> as well. All at the same time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking about um, Dreamscaper and uh, how they knew when to be done. And like, <laughs> you know, a big thing for them was kind of their like monetary runway. They were like, we have until a certain time, so we kind of need to make it a finished product by then. And so, like, they had to decide, you know, how many levels they wanted, how many bosses they wanted, and then just try and do it all before they functionally ran out of money. Because they did a Kickstarter, they got, like, a grant, and um, they also did self-funding. So... Yeah, I think like with creative works, like sometimes arbitrary deadlines or, you know, self-imposed deadlines or even just like, just you know, some kind of external monetary constraint. deadlines. Yeah, a lot of like, yeah, external things um, like having these rails are not a necessarily a bad thing mm -hmm. because having totally. like a a drop dead date. <laughs> can sometimes yeah. actually lead to better things like yeah I mean, what one of the things i'm thinking about is i did improv for a while um and to you know throw out another random sort of you know um aphorism like you know there's nothing scarier to a painter than a blank canvas um mm -hmm. but in improv for people who aren't familiar with it typically you're just sort of like making stuff up on the spot um in response to some sort of input that you get from the audience and the thing is, you know, getting the input from the audience is a very useful act because if you get a really good suggestion from them, it almost sort of like, you know, can kickstart your brain into some sort of scene you would have never thought of yourself. Um, As opposed to just being like, yeah. we shall now improv. Here we go. Exactly. Right? Like with no spark. Like, <laughs> what would that even be? It would be pretty boring and also it'd be the sort of thing where you'd have no way of knowing if they were actually making up their terrible material on the spot or if they had rehearsed it already because you know <laughs> yeah it doesn't have to relate to anything the audience said um i mean maybe it's I just them saying yes up. and to each other over and over again just there's just right it's it's so blank and unstructured that it's just reduced to its purest form yeah. 
<laughs> yes, it is. And, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, I, I just sort of wanted to point that out because I feel like very often, like you're saying, having some sort of constraints or initial direction or limitations in what you can do can be very useful to someone who's creating something um, just in terms of giving some sense of direction. Because when the entire world is open to you and you can choose any direction you want, um, it can be kind of scary to choose any of them. I think that's why game jams in general almost always have some kind of driving motivator behind them. Like, mm -hmm. you know, each Ludum Dare has a topic that's like, make it... Like you are the villain. Yeah. Like, use that. <laughs> or you are the monster. Like, be inspired by that to make it... <laughs> Um, otherwise it's just kind of like, Hey, get together and make a game. And then like, you spend the entire fucking guy time arguing about what to make. <laughs> yeah. The, the metaphor I've used, I've actually used this, you know, cause I've, I've run game jams for like students before is like creativity is kind of like a, ho like water coming out of a hose. Like if it, if you like don't constrain it, it just sort of dribbles out it just kind of goes, Bleh. but if you like stick the your thumb over hose it, are you using? well, like the 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 kind that works for this analogy um <laughs> the, one, the house that has no water pressure <laughs> yeah like a hose with poor water pressure but then you stick your thumb over it you give you put some constraints on the water and it shoots really hard in one direction that's kind of like putting constraints on your creativity right your creativity doesn't kind of just dribble away and and dilute itself it like when it has these constraints it has a direction it goes somewhere and it can do it with more force than if it's like unconstrained Listen, it was a, it was a much better received analogy with the kids than it was with you fuckers. <laughs> kids are dumb. <laughs> I, I, I'm the no and guy in improv. <laughs> no but. What about this? No but. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. No but. I have a gun. <laughs> Solution to every scene. <laughs> hmm. So yeah, um, one of the <laughs> one of the like examples that comes to my mind of like another real life example that's not games related is, uh, as far as like having like too much creativity and too much freedom, is with George Lucas in the prequel movies, the Star Wars prequel movies. This was a point where he had kind of achieved very legendary status, and at least like the narrative that. I have sort of seen on the internet, right? Is that like he kind of had no more, he kind of had only yes men around him. He had no more like people that would sort of challenge him or like, you know, just say mm -hmm. no to certain things. Uh, and that kind of led to a, a movie where he had almost unlimited creative freedom in addition to like almost unlimited sort of creative, or sorry, unlimited like, you know, CGI special effects, which unfortunately don't always age so well, but that's what it is. And then we get these sort of like, kind of confusing all over the place movies with like way too much visual spectacle and all these other all these other issues that happened with that those movies um to me to me that seems like a really good example of that as well yeah yeah just kind of like you're free to make whatever you want and then you're like oh shit <laughs> i mean there's and, a lot and... of other factors i think in star wars going like off the rails like one of the things was like wasn't his now like ex-wife the editor on those movies and yeah, like, she, she saved... essentially made the original star wars what it is she saved like it, it was her editing edit. powers yes. that like turned that into something that was like amazing right so she, he didn't have more people like that that 
were able to sort of challenge him creatively and like not not treat him like some like legendary Star Wars deity. You know, he was like a scrappy 20 something year old director that had to deal with like ridiculous constraints for those original movies. You know, so many practical effects he had to use and like, you know, working with like a freaking, you know, R2D2 droid and C3PO droids like in like the hot baking Tunisian desert. And getting yeah. sand all up in the joints, and just all these crazy things that happened in in the, in the original Star Wars, as opposed to like filming literally everything on a green screen, and the actors don't get to see your experience or tangibly like get what they're where like the the sense of place that they're in. Just, just I think all these sorts of things. The Star Wars like original trilogy and the prequel trilogy are also like this is kind of tangential to like our topic, but just. The idea of like glorifying the auteur, yeah, and how that had like that went awry, like the original Star Wars trilogy, like he wasn't the like he wasn't really an auteur. He was working with other people. He would like that those movies weren't like purely him, but then they were done and they were pretty much solely attributed to him. Mm-hmm. So then the next time they were like, okay. Make a new trilogy. All we need is George. It turns <laughs> out you get some fucking weird shit when you just do that. Yep. And uh it's like, hey, maybe let's not let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's the exact same thing with like video games where you get a sequel made by an entirely different team that might still be under the same company's umbrella. And very often those things don't feel or play at all like the original one. Kind of like uh Halo like three versus Halo four, mm. where it went from Bungie to three four three. That said, yep. this is again totally different. I thought Halo four was really really good, and I liked it more than I liked Halo three. So, <laughs> but that's I think because I don't know if I ever played Halo four. I got maybe a third of the way through Halo four. I was playing it with my roommate, but for whatever reason, I guess it just didn't pull us in. It was visually spectacular. Yes. Like, they were so good at, like, making, like, you would come upon a place and it just looked absolutely astounding. And they, like, did really good. Like, it did really good at that. Um, But, I mean, like, even between, let's say, Halo 1, 2, and 3, those were all Bungie. And everyone was like, Bungie's great. But I also wonder, like, between each game, how many of those people stuck around? Like the average like lifespan of a person in a video in like a video game company is like five years, I think. And then they die. <laughs> they just evaporate. <laughs> I mean, there's a good portion of them that leave the video game industry forever from just yes. burnout. Yeah. But uh, you know, in that time, like th- like five years, in in some cases, that's one game. So you could have an entirely different group of people making, you know, Halo two to Halo three. I think Halo one and Halo two came out pretty close together so it's probably like it wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if it was like the same team but like halo 2 to halo 3 i think there was enough time that like you could have enough turnaround where you know arguably is it the same company even you're, you're invoking the ship of theseus uh philosophy yes I w- i'm exactly yeah. i was just going to say that <laughs> like just because it's all the same parts is it still the same ship yeah, I don't know, man. 
there's definitely like a i mean there's still like a legacy and like a set of at least like i don't know values that a company keeps and or the values that the game itself like imposes right like a halo game has to be about you know like big epic space shit and it has to have guns (laughs) yeah and And if like the top tier like leadership and like driving forces do stick around Mm -hmm. and like like that can kind of be enough to at least like have it very similar um but when you start having turnaround like like let's look at um like uh the mass effect series like andromeda because there was such a big time gap between mass effect 3 and andromeda and like I'm pretty sure a lot of there was like a big shakeups in terms of leadership. I think there were some people who were still like involved, like from did the original one, but like, yeah, the magic you know, kind of was. One thing is it changes what you're saying. What you're saying right now is a little contradictory to like the uh, right uh, glorifying the auteur, but like maybe there is something to be said about like at least rather than say like uh, a soulless company being responsible for the making of a game you do somehow attribute the people who were in, uh, integral to making the game and if you don't have those people you know are you going to make it a, a game that is like the same soul of the original or something you know you know what i mean yeah i guess what i i guess like what how i'm like connecting the two is um o- almost in like my my thought process like the company is the auteur you know mm-hmm. and so like you know, you're like also as a side the same note, company. Do we want to define auteur? Like, it's just a, it's just a, yeah, it's just a pretentious way to say author or artist. Okay, <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing something here. Okay, because that was my assumption, but then you just kept on pronouncing it auteur, 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 and I'm like, huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess I didn't go to art school, so there might be some important term I'm it's, missing. It's here. used a lot in like film. Uh, yes. Death of the auteur. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, like I was thinking like, you know, the company kind of stands in as the auteur. So then people start glorifying like, you know, Bungie, you know, Mm -hmm. but then they don't take into account that it's actually like the human beings that are making these things. And, you know, if you completely swap out every single person, but it's like the same company, you know, are you like, it's kind of like that. What's going, what's happened at like Blizzard in a way. I was going to say people were always like uh there's blizzard has that magic touch or whatever but it did Mm -hmm. but like you know everyone has been reshuffled around it's now a huge huge mega company and like it's it's hard to look at blizzard and have that same like feeling i think it was easier to like have feelings like that you know around the turn of the century, like 99, 2000 through like 2000, even 10. Cause I think game companies were a lot smaller, like mm-hmm. 99 and 2001, I think is when like Diablo two came out. Right. And, uh, like it was like blizzard North. And I think those, it was a pretty small, it wasn't like a huge company, you know, it was like a few dozen. Like what size are you talking about? Okay. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was also a time in the industry where you didn't need nearly as many, much manpower to create all the assets that you do right. for modern, massive 3D high resolution games. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think at that point, like you could, a lot of times there was like a very, like Blizzard was kind of just Blizzard. Like I think it would, like you didn't have the turnover you do now. So mm -hmm. like it was a very consistent group of people. And so when they moved from like Warcraft 2 or whatever, and then moved on to something else, um, though like Diablo was done by Blizzard North, which was a separate thing. But even then, like you're like Blizzard North, like I love everything Blizzard North makes. You can you can say that and like it kind of works because I think it was a very consistent group of people making those games. Yeah. Nowadays, like it who like who's put on projects like you have hundreds mm -hmm. of people and they're all mixing together like and people don't really take that into account like the like collaborative <laughs> like human creation of it they just kind of look at like a big a big name and yeah. just attribute it everything that way and that's why i say like the game company almost stands in for the auteur i feel like one of the things i'm taking away from this is that very often there's this confusion of the face of a you know particular thing like george lucas was the face of star wars and you know probably the guy who's most responsible for it but he's not the only person responsible for what made the original set of movies uh you know successful and as good as they are um but the thing is when you attribute all of that credit to him uh you're overlooking a hell of a lot of other people that were Pretty instrumental important right um and i mean similarly like if you're saying that a game company is the face and then oh this is made by blizzard and blizzard makes good games but it could be an entirely different set of people behind the scenes like again you're sort of misattributing it and i think it's why it's uh on the one hand useful to sort of you know but on the other hand i feel like i'm never going to like watch through the credits of all of the games that i'm interested in <laughs> to see who's involved in them and you know, hey, I like this person's editing. I like this person's, uh, you know, sort of like soundboarding. I like this person's whatever. And wow, put them all together. Um, I guess it's just, it's, I mean, it almost blows my mind how many people are involved in how many disparate disciplines in order to make a video game nowadays. And oh, yeah, it makes it really crazy. hard to determine like, oh, this one's going to be good because it's made by the same set of 5,000 people that the, la the last one was. I think... Uh... <laughs> An interesting, like I'm, I'm gonna like completely contradict myself here because uh, lately, Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln gets obsessed with movies, and we watch a movie like after we eat dinner, we take like a bath or whatever, and then before bed we'll like spend like 45 minutes watching a movie. So he gets in like these, I don't, I wouldn't say like ruts, but like he'll just like latch onto a movie, and every night we're watching the same movie over and over again, and lately. It's been for a while. It was uh, the Incredibles two, but now we're on the Incredibles one. And I haven't, I haven't nice. watched the Incredibles one in a very long time, um, but we've been watching it, and it's it's such a good movie. Oh, it's amazing! Um, yeah, it's one of my favorites. But I was looking at like um, trivia and stuff about it, and you know, it's in the Incredibles one. I don't know if this is still true, but the trivia for it said that, like, at the time, it was the only Pixar movie that was written by one person. Brad Bird? Brad right? Bird. Yep. Yeah. Brad Bird wrote it and directed it, like, all by himself. So, like, you know, <laughs> I'm saying, like, we shouldn't have auteurs, but then I'm like, 
like he he did have a huge hand in like making like making that movie what it is like start to finish uh and it's hard to be like okay yeah like <laughs> a big part of that movie is him. <laughs> like i'm sure i'm sure there were a lot of people that were influential in like making it what it is but i think you can't you like you can't make an incredibles movie without brad bird something like well this is involvement in the second one oh, was I it no I was wondering what his involvement in the second one was. I think the same. I'm pretty sure it was written and directed by him as well. Okay. I would fact check that one. But um, it is, to, I guess you could say like, uh, you know, it's not like Brad Bird was like told, here's a blank canvas, make a movie. Well, he, you know? he actually kind of, he, he was a little bit. <laughs> was he? So, uh, yeah, Lasseter wanted him to join Pixar. And he was with Warner Brothers for a while and he wouldn't come over. He wouldn't come over. And then uh, he did The Iron Giant. Yep. And Warner Brothers like fucking just nuked his movie, like would not like promote it or anything. He was super pissed. So he's like, all right, I'll 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 come over to Pixar. And Laster was like, um, the only thing I ask is that you make the movie you've always wanted to make. Okay. So he made The Incredibles. It was an idea he'd been sitting on for a while. And that's what he made. So, <laughs> yeah. It still means he had, like, a vision going into it, you know? Which already... Yes, that is true. Right, is in a way, like... It's kind of a constraint. Like, you already have, like, a, a semi-complete thing in mind. It's not like you're, I don't know, reaching for whatever the f- whatever the F seems right. I don't know. Yeah. There definitely seems to be something different there. And, like... God, yeah, it's so, just like uh, Incredibles Two was written and directed just by Brad Bird. Okay, okay. okay. I didn't like Incredibles Two nearly as much. It was like an okay movie. It was good, but damn, I liked it. Was it not but Incredibles yeah, 1. it's great because it's like you watch uh, Incredibles One, you're like, this doesn't, this doesn't look super great, but it's you got, get kind of you, you kind of like it. It kind of washes over you after a while, and you're like, you kind of just get used to it because the movie is so good but then like you watch the incredibles 2 and somehow that like retroactively improves the look of because (laughs) you can watch incredibles 2 and you're like oh this is what it looks like and then when you think back about incredibles 1 you're picturing incredibles 2 it's like fucking you're picturing it with incredibles 2 level graphics is what you're saying yeah Yeah, it's really weird because then when you go back and watch it you're like oh i don't remember it looking this bad but then again as you watch it you forget what it looks like and just get engrossed in it as a side note it is kind of amazing how like experiences can be enhanced in our memories uh versus what they actually were because like i remember for example uh hearing a song from i think heroes of might and magic one and in my mind it's you know there's like you know blaring classic you know harpsichord solo and stuff like that and and then i go back and i listen to it and it's like wow this is just like midi kind of garbage (laughs) <laughs> I thought this was sort of like orchestral quality score with like people singing and whatnot in the background. Yes. Sephiroth. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think like Final Fantasy gets like is a weird muddied water mess because there was so much like music produced for other shit about like Final Fantasy after the fact where they then like used better music. So then like you did hear improved versions at some point, 
And then you go back to play the original game. You're like, oh, this sounds like trash. What the fuck? <laughs> and then, of course, they just remade the game in, like, whatever the fuck the new version is called. Final Fantasy VII Force Two. of Fire. I don't know. Do you guys have any other points, counterpoints to the idea of, like, too much creativity, too much creative freedom, too much runway? I think there's a I lot of great examples in like music stuff where like you can see like yeah. bands like once they get successful take like an outrageous amount of time to finish their next album or whatever or kind of a slightly like related great. yeah or the kind of related concept of almost the inverse is like you know a band has their entire life to make their first record and then six oh. months to make their second record nice yeah. you know if they have to put out it in like a you know for money reasons or whatever but yeah yeah i was thinking of the example of duke nukem forever <laughs> yes. which i think is really sort of like how bad the situation can get uh if it goes unchecked which was you know Duke nukem 3d was a very successful game like 30 years ago something like that um and you know it was great lots of people enjoyed it and then they started working on their sequel duke nukem forever and i don't remember how many decades uh and how many developers they went through before the project was finally released in some form but uh they really like didn't do themselves years, right? any favors, right? But they didn't do themselves any favors by not having deadlines or sort of you know small achievable goals. They just sort of like redid the entire thing over and over and over again, and basically were thrashing in the waters. Yeah, yeah that's like one of those cases where it's like, even if it's bad, they should have just released it because I mean it turned out <laughs> bad, but they spent X amount more money like making still a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, allegedly, I mean, I'm sure that there's. Go ahead. Allegedly, that was the case where you know George Broussard, who was the head of 3D Realms or whatever studio that was, would like see a tech demo or a new game and see some new graphical features. Like we gotta have that, add that color lighting thing, add that reflection thing. Like every oh, time the, the dev team would have to scramble to like add something to the engine, they had to like switch engines because it couldn't handle what they were trying to do. Jeez. Oh my god, are you kidding me? Over yeah, just over and over again, just the strip. Yeah, like they switched engines multiple times. Was he involved in the final version? Because I thought Gearbox released the final one, right? Yeah, I think they did. So I don't know what the, the path I, of that I feel was. like at some point it was taken out of whoever was in charge's hand and just handed over to Gearbox. So I don't even know if the thing that was released had any connection to like the original people at all. I think they just were like handed a IP and were like, make a game. And then they they just made a piece of shit, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember seeing a video of like the first, you know, five minutes of the game. But the most important thing was like, you know how when you start a video game, it gives you a splash screen of the developer involved in it. Yeah. Well, you got a splash screen for 3D Realms and a splash screen for another developer. Oh, and a splash no. screen for another developer and a splash screen for another developer and you're like wow how many of these are you going to go through yeah like this thing traded hands a lot of times <laughs> yeah, it was a, hu it was a human one. a human centipede of developers <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to think if there's any more examples of like because i mean that one's like the most egregious that's yeah, pretty like, bad there are the games that still haven't come out, not just Silk Song. I'm talking about like Halo, uh, not Halo, uh, Half Life Three. It's like legendarily. Huh. <laughs> no, Half Life Three is a great example because Valve is a perfect example of that, uh -huh. where they have near infinite money, and they have yep. no reason to have a deadline. And the way that their company is set up, it's just kind of like whoever wants to work on what, and it's almost like people worked on stuff and then just kind of 
dropped it or I, like yeah because yeah. there's just no structure they like it's the most open that like a game company could be to the point of just like they don't make anything and the fact like i don't even know how half-life alex came out period or even came right. into existence like it's such like an odd thing like that it even happened to me like Yeah, and there's like uh and and then there's the the other thing of that which is games that they have already released get kind of like abandoned. Right? And now Team Fortress 2. Mm-hmm. I listened to a podcast recently from I think Reply All talking about how uh Team Fortress 2 is essentially on the precipice of a bot apocalypse and it's going to completely ruin the game pretty soon and they're like doing almost nothing about it. It's probably because there's huh. it's like old news and not interesting for a bunch of like you know, you can't herd cats to make if, if if that's how this like company is is structured. There's no one to be like fix Team Fortress Two because mm-hmm. everyone's going to be like, eh, I want to go work on this weird virtual reality right. tech instead or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the structure of the company. Like from what I've read, and this is this was a little while ago, was that uh, it literally is like they hire some of like the best and brightest, and then they're just like, yeah, you just you're kind of, you've got to be self-motivated. Like you just wrangle whoever you want to work on whatever like thing you feel like. And then you yeah, guys because just if you're do the a thing. Good, if you're a good game developer, that automatically means you're a great leader of men as well. Like, <laughs> I, Yeah, I don't, I like, that's what I read. And I was like, it can't possibly be true. Cause like, well, <laughs> fucking nothing would get done. But then you look at their track record and you're like, well, okay, yeah, that tracks. Yep. <laughs> What so do they do they make Dota? Who the fuck makes Dota? They make Dota, right? Or two? Dota they make two. Dota two. Yes. There's no such thing as Dota, Dota one, one, right? Dota one is just there the Warcraft is. mod. It, it, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, okay, okay. But I mean like is that is that like what is that all Valve is doing? Because there two. has to be like some structure around that making that game, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they just have like, a, that's a, a huge... motivated base of people to work on it. I don't know. It's so weird. Question. What a weird ass company, man. Do you one thing so, that I'm wondering about is like how much and this is kind of across the whole conversation we've been talking about is like when a company's been around long enough that the people who grew up on its games or media or whatever then become part of that industry and then join those companies. And whether or not that's like a good, good. thing. <laughs> does that does or that, that, that mean that these people like uh, artistic incest? Is it artistic incest, well, or is it like people who can come in and really like hold that company accountable to its like ideals that it started with, mm-hmm. or is it both? I probably both. I think it's like the longer that like time goes on, and like the more I'm like in this industry and like read about this industry, I think it's actually like not a good thing. Um, like. Blizzard kind of being a prime example of this, where everyone's like, "I love Blizzard games." Used to be my dream. I want to go work at Blizzard. Blizzard. Yeah, same. Used to be my dream as well. And now you're reading about it, and you're like, "Oh, that's hell! Like Mm -hmm. that is a nightmare." And how how do you get that way? And one way is that you have a massive, like, uh, exploitable base workforce, naive, passionate, and they're like completely disposable because you have so many people clamoring to get jobs there so you can just use and abuse these people and then the moment they like start getting smart kick their ass to the curb fill in their spot with one of these younger bright-eyed fresh people models yeah even even not even younger just people who don't like who just want to be part of that company because they Mm -hmm. love their shit it's Mm -hmm. like uh 
yeah, that's that's not great. That's why I think having a little bit of contempt for where you work is not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good idea to go in with your eyes open and understand what the motivations of companies are. And there's good things that can happen to companies and there's bad it's things money. that can happen to companies. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, like you need to be looking out for your own best interest when it comes to employment because there's lots of uh, disreputable, or even, even reputable employers, but there's lots of room for exploitation is all. Um, yeah, I mean, at but, the end of the day, like even the best companies are still companies and they yep. have a bottom line and like, like if they're like between like their best interest and your best interest, theirs will always come first. Sure. And so I think like as an employee, you have to like just keep that in mind. Like, and I think a lot mm -hmm. of people don't. So to pivot this into a slightly more uplifting direction, there's another <laughs> sort of variant of the earlier discussion we were having about the auteur. Um, and, you know, also these games that are never finished or whatnot. Um, and I was thinking about some games like uh, Dwarf Fortress, which is, you know, sort of designed and programmed and all of the art, such as it were, is made by the same person. And there's like a bunch of, well, there's Isn't at least two guys. His brother might be involved to some extent. Oh, okay. um, maybe I'm not sure, but my point simply being that like there's a number of games like that where it's a single person who does everything. But very often these games like they work on their entire lives and never sort of like move on from the work another project. Like I don't know how long Dwarf Fortress has been in development. Um, I haven't played it in quite a while at this point. Um, but it's a very weird sort of game. Yeah. Um, and like part of that weirdness is only possible because it's a single person who's doing it with you know what they care about and prioritizing that things mm -hmm. and so you end up with things where like you've got your egg consists of two materials and like the egg whites and the egg yolk will sort of like you know boil at different temperatures in the game engine well of but course time, how else would you do eggs in a game Right. But at the same time, like you don't implement a feature where characters realize that clothes being on fire means that they should not pick them up off the ground and wear them. Um, Is that a thing that happens so, in Dwarf Fortress? I don't know if it still happens anymore, but it used to be the case. And oh. so like basically fire was like a communicable disease because like if a person <laughs> touched magma, they would catch on fire, they would die burning. And then a bunch of people would be like, hey, that guy's clothes are much nicer than my clothes. So they'd run up to the burning corpse take off their shirt put on a burning shirt and then walk back into the colony and then be on fire and then die as well and so basically you had to forbid them from looting anything off of burning corpses where they would you know kill themselves and this was a lower development priority than having discrete densities and boiling temperatures for different parts of the egg <laughs> but i mean like look at that like they in a in a sense they released it early mm -hmm. and so you could play it and, and like, iterated on it forever. And it's like never finished because yeah. they're going to continue working on it until they yeah. die, apparently. I mean, like, it, talking about, like, auteurs and stuff, like, the early days of Minecraft mm -hmm. before Notch <laughs> just sold, became... sold it for $2 billion. Well, not even just that. Before he kind of, like, turned into, like, an awful person. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Order of Operations... Revealed. Pretty sure the Order of Operations was he worked on it by himself. Then he started a company... Then he kind of lost interest in Minecraft and just sort of delegated working on Minecraft to other people yeah. in his company. 
Then he sold Minecraft Mojang for $2 billion. Then he had too much time on his hands and tweeted too much. And that's when we realized. <laughs> At least that's, that's the reparations that I know. The weird thing the is, sale. like, he tweeted a lot, like, early on. Like, he, he was really, like, vocal and, like, a part of, like, his development community. And it's super weird that, like, he didn't, like, he was, I don't know, like, his crazy, like, shittiness seemed to come out after he had a ton of money, which is, like, oh, what a coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like that. Uh, I don't know what that says about people, but... um early on like it, it like you know having just this one weird guy making weird shit you ended up with quirky interesting stuff and like his every friday dropping a new update was like really interesting because uh, you never knew what the fuck this guy was gonna add and he didn't tell you so you had to like discover it um that was a magic time but that again, I basically missed out on sadly oh it was great it was yeah. a great time um and uh but it was released, you know, like even though it wasn't 1.0, it was in a like in a in a very real way released. And I kind of wonder, like, would Silk Song like benefit from some like a system like that, where at some point they release a version of it, and then they just spend a bunch of like time and like years just continually adding to it, you know? Like, I don't know, it's a little bit different because, I mean, like, Dwarf Fortress and Minecraft are very different from, like, um, Silk Song will be because, you know, those are open right. exploratory games. Yeah, it's a single-player like game a, with sort of a discrete ending at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of question the, like, idea that, yeah, they could kind of release something and iterate on it just because, at least the way that, if you would kind of imagine that had happened with Hollow Knight, it was... Uh, it's a very mild flow over Hollow Knight, but the way Hollow Knight is constructed, in order to get like the true ending, you it kind of forces you to explore the entire map. It's kind of oh, really? meticulously constructed. It's like you got to go here, you got to go here, you got to go everywhere before you can actually fight the true final boss and beat the game. You can't wow. like iterate a game into that state. You got to like polish it and like yeah. plan it out. You know, so that's true. Kinda, yeah, it's not quite amenable to that sort of thing. If they want to do Silk Song the same way, amenable. That's a good word. I like that word. One other thing I wanted to call out, since we're talking a lot about sort of get something out there and iterate on it, is the emergence of these programs like early access and open betas and things like that, where you know people working on something will put it in the hands of people explicitly before it's finished. Um, mm -hmm. And I've got some mixed feelings about that because I feel like sometimes the uh, something can be in. Uh, uh, early access for longer than is probably healthy. Um, but at the same time, you kind of know that what you're getting into when you buy an early access game and that it's not finished. And that's part of the reason why I very rarely buy early access games anymore. I think the only exception I've done to this was Dyson Sphere and Program, which was fun, but it was also you know clearly an early access game. Not all the systems are in place and there's a lot of rote repetition as a result. But yeah, when, done, it's a... when it's done right, right, it gives you the opportunity to uh, test your game with the audience before you kind of commit everything to it and sort of like build it almost alongside them based on their feedback, which mm -hmm. could be a really good thing, right? And you can see what things sort of respond to your users and there's a lot of really cool stuff, assuming you're going into it with a very professional mind and not like, a, this can just be an early access for forever. 
Yeah, and I think it definitely helps. Um, I feel like any sort of work of art really needs to be sharpened against uh, the experiences and perspectives of other people. If it's just something that you work on yourself and you never to show to anyone else and you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to release this and it's going to be a perfect game, but I can't release it until it's perfect. Uh, yeah, it's impossible. It's perfect. Spoiler. <laughs> well, I think we solved it. Yeah, we did. Definitely. We can now proceed to make the perfect game. <laughs> release it as early as possible. Release the first build you make that's playable. That's right. Yeah. As soon as it compiles, I'm going to release it on early access. Yeah, early access gray box prototype. Let's go. <laughs> okay. All right, why don't we take a break? Okay. Welcome back. Do you guys want to do... Hey, check this out. Absolutely. I'm going to recommend The Incredibles 1 <laughs> because I've watched it so much this past week and it's really good. It's also pretty ugly, but if you haven't seen it in a while, you should watch it. It's a really good movie. Like I liked it a lot. The fucking airplane scene with the missiles. That's 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 such a fucking great scene. It's mm. very good. That's it. That's mine. There are many other great scenes, but yeah. Mm. Did, did you know that in the first draft of that uh, movie, they had a separate pilot? Yep. Yeah, I'm pretty sure like it's the guy that she calls to requisition the plane. Yep. But it was a better scene without him. They did. It. They made yes. a good call. Yeah, this was much better. Yeah, they're just fine. Interesting, because I didn't know about that until I was reading. Uh, I forget what the name of the book was, but something about Pixar. Oh, here's a weird fact. Um, a guy Lindsay used to work with at a company called Remind. Um, he was like a product manager, or he was like the head of the engineers. He we went to his, he had this huge fucking like mansion, and he would throw these crazy Halloween parties. They're like super elaborate. And I was standing in his uh his like living room one year, and I looked down and he had like an Incredibles book, like coffee table book, and it had like a like scribble on it. And I leaned over and it was fucking like Brad Bird had signed it, and I nice. flipped it open and he had like a personalized note from Brad Bird inside the cover, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" He's like, "Oh yeah, I." came up with the uh the tech for the wet hair in that movie whoa i was like yeah. holy shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was pretty that's crazy. cool super cool all right uh i'm gonna go uh i want to recommend a book called art and fear uh, oh sorry it has a it has a tagline too art and fear observations on the perils in parentheses and rewards of art making and it is a book 
about it's like kind of a for artists by artists book that can kind of help you navigate some of the issues we were talking about today you know like why do artists uh stop making art or you know what 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 do they fear and like uh, about about both failure and success you know oddly and those are the things that can kind of put a damper on on um your your, your continued art making and of course you know it applies to any kind of art music or painting or game design or whatever um I definitely, I don't actually remember if I read it in full, but I know that what I did read, it impacted me pretty well. So I definitely would recommend it if you grapple with anything that we talked about today. What is the book again? Art art and Fear. Oh. Art and Fear. It's like two things of my life. Art, things you make (laughs) art, and fear. That thing that's Mm. always with you forever. (laughs) (laughs) I can throw out uh, something as well. Um, so I played for the first time in my life over this weekend, a game of Nomic, N-O-M-I-C, and it is a interesting game. Um, the basic premise is it's a game that starts with a set of rules, but the set of rules also contains mechanisms for changing the rules of the game. Hold on one second. I have to address this fact. Brendan, are you fucking drinking Capri Sun? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I found one in my mom's fridge. (laughs) Shit. I like looked over and I'm like, what the fuck am I seeing? <laughs> it's also making little crackly noises that occasionally get picked up by the mic, and that's probably not great. I'm sorry. Mm. Here, hold on. Let me just finish it. <laughs> okay, it's done. I'm going to go back to my water. <laughs> Enjoy the Capri Sun oh, right. ASMR impromptu. <laughs> right. <laughs> sorry. I'm actually going to take Trevor. back my recommendation and recommend Capri Sun instead. Uh, no. So, uh... Capri Sun. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway um so nomic uh the there's a basic set of rules but the rules include rules for changing rules um and so but in order to do that like you have to get everyone who's a participant in the game to like do a unanimous vote at first to change the rules but you can also change the voting mechanism so that it no longer has to be unanimous um and so it's the sort of game where also if you can cause a sort of uh, bad state for the game so the game cannot proceed during your turn, you win. So, like, you want to, you know, break the rules as much as you possibly can, but, and it also includes a mechanism for other people adjudicating disagreements in the uh, rules. So, suffice it to say, it's like a sort of mini government or constitution or courtroom Um and so it's also the sort of game that the experience is going to depend a great deal on the people that you play it with. Um, like if you play it with a group of lawyers and you're not yeah. one. Right. Like I th- I think that it would be a very interesting game for a group of people in law school. I'd be fascinated to see how that would work. Um, as it was, the way we're re- we were writing things up, um, like I'm sure there were you know, holes that could be punched in our language all over the place. I identified a couple of problems and failed to exploit them a couple times. One time I assumed someone was writing in a thing that would let them win the game immediately um, and pointed it out, but apparently they hadn't realized it before and people were about to approve it. So I could have exploited that and won the game, so I was Ah. sad about that. Um, But anyway, I I think it's it's not necessarily the sort of game that I would want to play a lot more. Um, or but I do think again. <laughs> but it's an interesting experience just in terms of it gives you a little bit of better appreciation for, you know, 
government in general and how they pedantry <laughs> yes that too but i mean that's the thing like if you're playing with a super pedantic person um who just has no sense of fun that's going to be an incredibly obnoxious experience but you can kick them out of the game using the game rules if you want to so you know that's always a possibility i want to lose friends to play this game <laughs> yes it isn't quite diplomacy level losing friends but you could certainly you know push it that way but on the other hand it's also like the sort of thing where you could uh, take it in completely random directions um like okay anytime someone makes someone else at the table laugh they get a point or something like that you know you can make the game whatever you want because you know it's just a system for changing rules interesting sounds interesting but i'm not sure i would want to play it it's an excellent game to play with lots of small children Oh, what? <laughs> I no, I'm not serious. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say kids don't follow rules on a good day. <laughs> yes, I don't. Know, I'm just imagining sort of more of a Lord Lord of the Flies sort of scenario. Totally. And or every every kid plays gnomic all the time. Like that's like what playground games are basically, right? Just make making up rules. Up rules. <laughs> yeah. No, gnomic is the like board game version of Calvin Ball. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so speaking of OTOR type games that take a long time to come out, uh, you should play Delta Rune. Chapter two just came out. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. It's it's free on Steam. You can play chapter one and two uh, for free. Um, for those that don't know, it's like a JRPG type game where you don't have to kill your enemies. You can spare them in various interesting and funny ways. Also, the writing's really good made by the same guy well it is kind of more of a team now but made by the same team who made undertale um if you haven't played undertale what the fuck are you doing with your life just go play undertale <laughs> and you should also play undertale before you play deltarune because they're very closely related and it kind of deltarune kind of won't really hit as hard unless you have played undertale first they're um, in like conversation with each other yeah yeah a lot of the same characters even though the world is not the same interesting so yeah so I'm still playing. So how are they making two. money on it if they're releasing the chapters for free? They probably don't oh. need to make money. Yeah, Undertale's pretty successful. There's also like a lot of merch. So they probably make bank on all the merch. There you go. That's uh that's how the Paw Patrol sustain themselves, <laughs> according to the fucking Paw Patrol movie. <laughs> the so Paw Patrol deep lore. <laughs> <laughs> the movie fucking sucks but there's a point where like they roll up into a new city and they have this huge fucking building and the little dogs are like how do we afford this and the guy turns around he's like merch people eat this shit up and i was like oh my god like because there's always people on twitter being like cancel the paw patrol because they're like oh, government funded like cops and bullshit and i'm like nah dog these guys are like private a private entity all the way so it's really funny that in the movie they address that horseshit in the stupidest <laughs> way also paw patrol is like a private military corporation yeah led by big boss yep yeah <laughs> great preferable question mark mm, well, it's not great <laughs> well that's great we did it so you can find me on twitter i'm at a minler where can people find you guys you can find me also on twitter i'm at the brendo also on twitter at heckbringer and i am also on twitter at red asian also soundcloud.com slash red asian and asian.bandcamp.com yeah and uh credits go to andrew ford for all the music in this episode and all episodes 
and editing of this episode was Andy Mindler. Uh, thank you ahead of time for editing out my Capri Sun crinkles. Don't. Don't do it. Damn. I'm going to amplify. <laughs> Enhance. Computer. Enhance. Just duplicate. Make it Enhance. so it's just like... Excellent. Stereo. Stereo quadraphonic 3D. I'm actually going to record special... I'm going to get a Capri Sun myself and like record enhanced versions of it and put them in while you're drinking. You're going to frame me for making more noise than I actually did. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, send us, send us off, buddy. Usually, <laughs> Wait, usually aren't, we missing, aren't we missing one? What? what does Mike usually do? Oh, Mike usually says you can find us on uh, Twitter at Team Radmars and radmars.com and radmars.itch.io oh my god oh radmars.itch.io are the two <laughs> places you can play our games there you go we were missing something good job we did. i'm sorry we this is why it's so end. important that he attend these he's the only one who can do this he had one job <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks for listening everybody and thank you guys for being here it's been a pleasure as it's always it's been a pleasure cruise Goodbye. A sex pleasure cruise. No, no, you took it too far. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>